so after the holidays uh, and, and you know kids went back to school back down to Eugene uh, we decided to do a little bit of house cleaning slash clearing out so we had enough stuff accumulated that I had to go to the dump that, uh, near Oregon City um, if you've ever been to the dump in Oregon City there's a lot of stuff there it's busted up it's no longer used uh, I do want to say it's well run and efficient, so this isn't a, a judgment on the dump itself, but it's a dump, okay? So it, it smells, it stinks. Um, every time I've gone, there's like this gaggle group of crazy birds that's there, and they're swooping in and going after stuff. I guess there's still food, even in, in, in large trash stuff. Um, basically, it's not a place you want to hang around too much, and it's definitely not a place where you think, this has happened. This is something significant that's going on here. So, imagine you and I going there one day, and uh, we, we go out to the dump, and we got there, and we went out in front of a bunch of trash, a bunch of refuse, some of the, the larger stuff, the crazy birds are still there scavenging, it stinks, it's out at the edge of the city. But on one of the larger pieces of trash, there was someone and not just someone walking around, but somehow this person was secured, fastened, uh, chained to a, a, a larger piece of trash. And there were uh, gathered around this person, regional, local, even federal uh, police, authorities, officials. And they were torturing this man. And eventually, they killed him. And if I turned to you in the midst of all that was going down right there, and I said, this is where the living and true God is meeting us. This is where God is revealing real power and wisdom in the death of this guy. Here, God, through this, is healing the world across cultures, time, space. Here is life. Think I was an idiot, would you? It would seem grotesque. It would seem absurd, foolish. I probably shouldn't be taken seriously, but avoided as someone who is inhuman, deluded, and crass. Full stop. But more or less, that's the scenario that we have in the first century with the cross of Jesus Christ. The historian Tom Holland in his book Dominion says in the first century world of the Roman Empire, the notion that a God might have suffered torture and death on a cross was so shocking as to appear repulsive. But for us, familiarity with the biblical narrative of the crucifixion has just kind of dulled our sense to just how completely novel a deity Jesus Christ is. In the ancient world, it was the role of gods who laid claim to ruling the universe to uphold its order by inflicting punishment, not to suffer punishment themselves. So here in our passage in 1 Corinthians, Paul reminds the Corinthians of the foolishness of God's power and wisdom shown in the cross of Jesus because they're already forgetting. Or maybe they're not actually forgetting, but they're turning the power and wisdom of the cross into something it is not. Maybe into its opposite. Just a few decades after the actual events of Jesus' death, 
in the same culture, in the same context of the Roman Empire. So how much more than for us can we tend to forget the scandal and outrageousness of the cross? Not just in the shameful events of Jesus' crucifixion, but in how those events shape and give power to the life that we are called to live in following Christ as well. So this morning we're going to briefly hear from God in this passage and ask for this particular portion of Scripture to be a lens into our lives, to, to, to examine our lives and our hearts as we follow Christ, asking a couple of questions and giving some answers. First question that we're going to ask um, looking at this passage is this. How did the Corinthian Christians forget the scandal of the cross? I mean, it seems like it had just happened. It was in, within many of them of their lifetime. Now, if you've read 1 Corinthians, you know that this first letter to the church at Corinth from Paul is not like a letter, other letters that he sent to other churches. It's not like a letter to the Romans or the Ephesians, which were these nice reminders of good news, exhortations to keep following Christ and general encouragement. Instead, the Corinthian church is ragged. They're shoddy. They're messed up, and they are running off the rails. They didn't need a global pandemic to kind of collapse in on them to get them fussing. The trouble all came from within, from their own heart. So Paul is writing this letter to correct significant problems. Not just in what these Christians believe, though, but no doubt he's, that, that kind of stuff's at play. But he's really leaning into how they order their lives their ethics, their witness to the world. So the Corinthian church is plagued by internal strife. It's not necessarily over persecution or external pressures. And the things that are going on with the uh, Corinthian church will give a, a short, I don't know if it's a shorter list, but it's a list of that kind of gives you a flyby of the, the, the book of Corinthians. What's going on with them? One, they are having quarrels over who is the most principled doctrinally, who's the most reformed, maybe, something like that. And you see this in chapters 3 and 12. But then there's also sexual brokenness in their midst as well. Chapter 6 and 7, there's folks having sex together who shouldn't be, and then there, there are those who should be having sex together who aren't, and Paul is willing to lean into both of those situations. But then there's also debates and schisms over who the most spiritual. Who's the most plugged in with the Holy Spirit? Who has these gifts with astounding power and wisdom? We see this in chapters 1 and 12 and 14. And then there's a special group, chapter 6. Folks are suing one another within the church. They're bringing lawsuits against one another. We'll actually talk about that in a little bit. And then they're even having trouble with idolatry. Chapters 8, 10, and 12. So much so that that same Disposition, those same um, disturbances are causing and spilling over into a misuse of the Lord's Supper. And then they're having contentions about the resurrection of the dead. Some are saying, that didn't really happen, it doesn't really matter. And they're just causing trouble, causing divisions, chapter 15. And if you can believe it, there's actually a few other things as well, and I won't, I won't kind of spill all that out. And while each of the issues that I listed has its own specifics and relational theological dynamics at root, the problems the Corinthians have are issues of power and issues of wisdom. More specifically, their practice of power and wisdom is shaped more by the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
and not by the cross of Christ. So this is why Paul is leaning into it. And what makes the situation even worse is that the Corinthians are all claiming religious high ground for their positions. They're claiming to be more godly even in the midst of their own moral and spiritual rot. All right? Let me give you a couple of examples that we'll plunge into a little bit. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul points out that they are bringing lawsuits against one another. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Power. Power. The Corinthians are going to court with one another as a way to express a kind of coercive, self-interested form of control against one another. As if to say, I have a right to this, whatever this is, and I'm going to get it, and I'm going to use the instrument of the court to get it from you, brother, sister. But for Paul, true power, gospel power, is shown in effectiveness. Particularly effectiveness in revealing things like humility. Godliness, service towards others. So much so that in the case of lawsuits between these church people, Paul says, y'all, why not just eat it? All right? Why even make a fuss about this? Take the loss. Suffer the wrong. Lose the money. Lose the land. Whatever. Because at least that way, you're not angling to get your way by force, by coercion. But you're actually bearing some resemblance anyway to Christ by your actions. Giving up your claims for the sake of others. Silly Corinthians, right? Easy to shake our fingers at them. But what about you? What about us? Because in some capacity, all of us have realms in which we exercise authority or control. We all have different realms in which we exercise responsibility. And I wonder if your move might be, like mine is sometimes, to simply try and get what I want. Whether it's by raw coercion, by threats, clever manipulation, or even a shading of the truth? Do you use your influence and your responsibility to serve and to bless, to honor others? Or do you have kind of this highfalutin, shined-up way of being grabby and strong-armed like the rest of the world, but you have a, a Bible cross-stitch to kind of justify it? See, one arena where this gets fleshed out is in actually loving our enemies. Too often, power... Force, coercion is how we handle those we disagree with um, or those that we see as enemies, opponents. I mean, the first challenge would be is do you get some sense of self-definition by even having enemies? Do you take delight in having enemies, those that are the, the us as opposed to the them or them opposed to the us? Or is your sense of self-defined as one who is fundamentally forgiven by the maker of heaven? I was talking to a friend of mine uh, back in Texas earlier in January, and he's an executive at an uh, energy company in, in Texas. Okay, it's an oil company, right? It's energy in Texas. Uh, and he told me that one of the things that he regularly prays for is to love his enemies. And I thought this was a very strange thing to pray as an executive. And I said, dude, who is your enemy that you're even praying this? This is even on your radar. And he said, the people I work with, I start to see as problems. 
They get in the way. They compete with my agenda. Uh, and, and so I just start to really get agitated with them and start leaning against them. Uh, and then I realized that as I, as I started to pray for them, because I was seeing them as an enemy, I was learning to get over myself. And so much of what learning to pray for enemies is getting over yourself first. He went on to say, look, I, I realize I'm important. I've got re uh, responsibility here. I'm not always right, but I'm called to serve. I'm called to serve Jesus first in this role, but I'm also called to serve these people that I work for as well as my clients. And that approach began to shape and to soften how he interacts and thinks about using his power, how he goes about using his influence as a Christian who also happens to be an executive. That's in the realm of power. Let's talk about wisdom a little bit. In several places, Paul addresses the problem of factions, of groups, of those who are dividers, who are setting themselves above other Christians, all under the pretense that they're just a little bit more spiritual, that they have more insight, more wisdom, and thus are free to act on what they have decided is right. In one case, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Are you so arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn, let who? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. You see, the so-called wisdom here meant that they were just free to do with their bodies what they wanted because they had been freed in Christ and were really believing it, unlike these other folks who were still sheep or, or, or you know, living in bondage or slavery or whatever theological justification they were given. In another situation in Corinthians, there were those who separated themselves from others under the pretense of elevating themselves. They were wiser, they were more in tune with the Spirit. And they were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. They were eating all the food. And it ended up, it was, they were overindulging. It happened to be the rich people. And other folks were not able to actually get anything to eat at the Lord's Supper. Another abuse of freedom, creating division. Rooted in wisdom that claims Christ, right? Paul never says these people are not Christians. But in fact, is a wisdom that privileges oneself instead of others. Serves oneself instead of others first. It's an arrogant wisdom, a selfish wisdom, instead of a humble wisdom. So let me get right on the nose on this one. Too often in our churches, we Christians talk about freedom in a way that has the appearance of being godly, appearance of Christian freedom, but is actually a falsehood. Freedom is a truth. You see, the, Christian, the, the, the freedom that Christians have, and Paul addresses this a good bit in places like Romans and Galatians, is what? It's a freedom from sin and a freedom to serve and worship God, a freedom to bless others. It's not a freedom to be reckless or self-indulgent or selfishly triumphalistic or to elevate ourselves and our interests above those of others. In fact, as, as Christians, the freedom we should carry should be known as a, a freedom shown in care for others especially the least of these, even to the point of it being an inconvenience to us, even to the point of it costing something from us, whether it's our time or our treasure or our rights, something the Bible actually doesn't give a lot of attention to, by the way. Instead, we have the freedom to give up our claims to self-promotion and self-assertion. To put it another way, quoting Dietrich Bonhoeffer, it's not the quote that's in your word of worship, uh, but another one from the same place. 
says this, if it is I who says where God will be, I will always find a God there who corresponds to me, is agreeable to me. But if it is God who says where he will be, the place he will be is the cross of Christ. A place of sacrifice in God's presence. And that gets us to the second question that we're looking at. The first question was, how did the Corinthians forget the cross? Likewise, how did we forget the cross and its wisdom and power? But the second question is this. Why, for Paul, is wisdom and power of the cross such a big deal? Why does Paul here and elsewhere in the New Testament refer to the cross as the very form, the experience even, of the Christian life? Well, he does this in short because the cross of Christ reveals God as God, period. See, the crucifixion was not a last-ditch effort on the part of God to try and finally achieve what he couldn't do by other means. It wasn't some kind of pragmatic or calculating ploy to get us to have sympathy for Jesus when we see his sorry plight and finally do the right thing out of shame. Rather, the actions of the cross reveal God to us as God is. And by faith, gives us that same power demonstrated in the cross to live the life that he calls us to live. The cross does something. This is what I'm trying to say. The cross reveals God, the God who wins the world, not by a survival of the fittest, not by a triumph of the will, but one who comes in the flesh, one who comes humiliated, who doesn't come with armies, who doesn't come with a sword, who doesn't come with overt coercive power, who doesn't come with toxic divinity, but rather instead comes by being exposed by being humbled, suffering, taking on flesh, taking on human experience, taking on human emotions, and being trans and being pierced for our very transgressions against him. You see, the power of weakness is God becoming human in Christ and setting aside his rights and serving and saving by his life, motivated by costly love. Listen to what Paul says in another place in Philippians 2. It's a Christmas passage, but y'all, we never get out of Christmas, right? We're always talking about God coming to us in Christ, in the flesh. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. William Willimon was the former chaplain at Duke University, when he was there, I don't know how often they had chapel services, but at least a couple of week on the times a week at the, on the camp, uh, campus at Duke. And he had football players, a few guys from the football team who were regularly start coming, and they would interact with uh, Wilmon afterwards. They'd come hear the sermon and talk, and they start doing small groups and all this fun stuff. But he noticed that at, among this group of people who was football players who was coming, there was one dude who would come and sit outside the chapel and wait for his friends to come out when they're done. He would not 
go in. So, you know, being a good shepherd, there's got the 99 here, but there's the one, right? He went and talked to this guy and said, hey, bro, what's going on? You know, I see that you have these friends that are all involved and you come, you come just, you know, close enough to the door, but you don't come in. What's, what's going on? And he said, well, you know, I don't know if I'm down with this religious stuff and love your neighbor stuff and all this praying and asking God to be the center of my life, blah, blah, blah. That's all the stuff my friends are talking about. I just, it's not for me. And he said, wait a minute. This is what I want to the guy. He said, you mean to tell me you're sitting on the outside of this church and you're not going to come in because you think God's going to call you to do stuff like love your enemy and worship and serve and change some significant things about your life? That's what's keeping you out? He's like, yeah. He's like, that, that's a good reason to stay out. He's like, that's exactly right. Because when you're called into the church, all are called, all are welcome. But he doesn't leave you the same once he brings you in. He brings you to make you more like himself. And who he is is a very upside-down God. His power is not like the power of the world. It is shown both in suffering and in service. And that is triumph. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask for your help to understand these things. They are indeed upside down. They might be familiar to us, but they are still not instinctual to us. We pray that you would form us to be the kind of people, not through grit, but through grace, because of the power of your Spirit in us, humbling us, but also vivifying us, making us strong, full of life, full of Spirit, in such a way that we could do things like love others who are not really lovable serve others who maybe don't deserve to be served, or maybe do, but that we would do it with a, a tenderness of heart, with gratitude, and with a sense that is strange and topsy-turvy as it is, this is real power because we are sharing in your very life. This is who you are, the God of the universe, um, and we want more of that. Help us, we pray. Amen.